So when I get triggered, what what happens is what I feel is the symptom of a trauma area that resides somewhere deeper inside of me. And I don't feel the trauma really, I feel the symptoms that it creates. So first of all, when I get triggered, usually my capacity to stay spacious, to stay open, to stay in a, in a, in a state of relatedness gets reduced. So either we get very agitated and stressed or we get distant, shut down, numb and uh, indifferent. And in both, we lose often at least the capacity to feel the other. So our relational space, so when we are sitting here now, I think for many of us, the relational space is open. So our nervous system is regulated, is, is in a social engagement zone, and we can feel each other while we speak, and our inside and outside are more connected. Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast. Today we have a very special conversation from a recent community gathering hosted by Sand co-founders Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo. And our guest today is Thomas Hubel, and they discuss his brand new book, Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World. All today on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Good morning. Good afternoon and good evening, wherever in the world you are. And uh, my name is Maurizio Benazzo. My name is Zaya Benazzo. And welcome, welcome to this conversation with uh, Thomas Hubo. Yeah. With our dear friend and, mm. and author, Thomas. Yeah. And we will have a conversation about his latest book, Attuned. Yes. Um, and today we made a huge decision. We are not going to read any bio. We just simply say that Thomas is amazing and is a good friend and an amazing teacher and author. And we stick to that without reading a bio. It's the first, Thomas, for us. Just be aware. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. <laughs> the friend sounds the best to me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> cool. it's, well, um, where shall we begin, Thomas? Maybe if you feel like guiding us through a little presencing um, practice or just a couple of moments to fully arrive here for all of us. Yeah, that's great. Let's do that. Um, we can like to do it brief now and then we do it a bit later in the transition to the Q&A part of our conversation. Uh, maybe we just take a moment coming into this call. Like when you take a screenshot of how you feel when we come here together, every one of us comes from different activities. Yeah different times in our days. So let's just check how, what's your physical, emotional, mental inner state. 
Maybe take a breath. The exhalation, take a screenshot of your inner experience. Since we're talking today a lot about attunement, that's already practicing attunement, attuning to yourself, you can also take another breath and slow down a bit the way you exhale. And with the exhalation, drop into your body sensations and just notice how it feels to sit here come into this session here. Also maybe a little bit how your day is still reverberating in your body. If you had a calm day, a stressful day, or a stressful night, a calm night, you feel regenerated, charged, stressed, and all the sensations that are there are welcome. We want to include everything that arises. Do you feel where most of your aliveness resides in your body right now? So notice that you have a capacity to witness your body sensations. Something in you is aware that you feel yourself right now. I may notice that as well. It's a little bit of, or a lot of inner space that allows us to be aware of our process. And then you want to center your awareness for a moment in your heart and when you slowly um, open your eyes and stay connected to your, stay attuned to your inner experience, but at the same time, when you open your eyes, include us on your screen and you maybe go to the color view for a moment and say how beautiful it is to be in an in a community, in an ecosystem, also with like-minded people that are interested in a similar kind of developmental approach to life, the deepening of our life. And just take a moment and we shift the attunement from our inner world to our social ecosystem here, get a sense who is here. And if you look at the screen, you can also allow that your whole body is uh, 
looking and sensing that we are not just looking with our eyes, but we are actually looking as a whole nervous system. And we also feel the wholeness of everybody that's here. And that creates like a more present, more synchronized collective space. Oh, great. That brings us more into the space here. Definitely, yeah. It's a good way to begin the conversation, rather than, yeah. Um, so, we were curious, um, what led you? We know you work on collective trauma and collective healing. And what led you to write a book about attunement? And why attunement? Why attunement specifically is important as part of the healing process? And maybe if, if you could share a few uh, principles, uh, the way you understand attunement and what are some of the principles uh, share. Uh, will be probably I point. think that, sorry, did you want to say more? No, 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 perfect. Um, I think just what we did just right now, um, when in this 20 plus years of working with individuals, but also a lot on this kind of large collective wounds or scars, like how we notice those collective trauma scars is through all the places where we are not attuned where we feel hurt, retracted, overly triggered and and hyperactivated and stressed and where our the fabric of our society fragments very easily when we get stressed together. And especially we saw this through covid, we saw we are seeing this I think more and more through the climate impact that the more stress is in the biosphere, the more those wounds will be active. And and that's not such a good prospect for us to be able to deal with those challenges creatively. So that's why I think um, what I've learned over this longer time of working with it is that the relational skill building we could see on the one hand is is something we can train, but then. We also saw, oh, where I'm hurt, I can actually not train myself to be more relational because protecting myself was a very intelligent function in me. I cannot just try to override it and I just create some effort. And and we we know that in a way there's this like word that many people use is presence. Mm or being more present with each other, which on the one hand, obviously, is very powerful, important, and the basis, I think, of who we are anyway. On the other hand, I think in the traumatic moment, when in the moment that somebody gets hurt and the trauma response kicks in, the body and our being says, here, 
in space and time, it's not good for me. When a child gets hurt, it's not good for the child in this moment, in this place. And so what happens, I think, in us, besides emotions and stress and, and what happens in when trauma kicks in, then is that we fragment space and time. So here, to be here and to be now is not the best option. So to desensitize myself, to retract, to shut down a part of myself, to not feel the pain that I felt is better than to keep it open. Otherwise we wouldn't do it. But then we created a culture where we pathologize exactly those functions as weaknesses, dysfunctions. I'm not able to feel my body versus I was able to shut down part of my body experience. That's a diff that's empowering. The other one is disempowering. It seems like I'm not able to do it or I want to ground myself, but I often feel it's hard for me to feel the ground or to ground myself. But we could also say at a certain moment in your life or in a phase of your life, you managed to unground yourself because that was better than to feel that the constant pain of being neglected, being abused emotionally, however, that that was too painful. And I think in the whole work of becoming more present for some people becoming more present is like a bit of an effort because we try to override the intelligence of not being present. So not being present is not a dysfunction. It's actually an intelligence that we can learn to work with and slowly come back and inhabit the planet. It's literally, I think we learn to, through disembodying oneself or shutting parts of our experience down, we disinhabit. And, and we are kind of coming back to feel the wholeness of who we are, the wholeness of what nature is, what the biosphere is, what humanity is. We are coming into that experience again. And I think... So that's why attunement is a way to create, it's, it's an individual, but also an ecosystemic practice. When I'm more attuned and I hold space for other people, this can be my children, this can be my intimate partner, my family, work colleagues, society, politicians. We, the way I am in the world is creating a world. So it has an ecosystemic effect. Either I put poison in the ecosystem or I clean poison in the ecosystem. And, and so I think relational health as so many factors and studies and Harvard study and whatever shows that how fundamental uh, relational health is for our health and for the planetary health. And that's why I, I thought, okay, working so much with trauma, like attunement, and then of course also for professionals, for therapists, that attunement is such a basic function of expressing love. Because when somebody feels felt and seen specifically and not generically, it's it's an act of love, I believe. So that's why the healing aspect of attunement and the training aspect of attunement together, um, I think are powerful practice. And that's why I thought it's good to write my experiences of this work in the last two plus decades. 
um, into this book. Yeah. To to I, I really love what you said about how often we're attempting to become present and it can be almost forceful in spiritual mm -hmm. circles. I've seen, I felt that. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is almost attunement is uh it's like a process for becoming present. It's not mm -hmm. You're not suddenly present, right? There is there is a process to become fully here, to become fully present. That's what I'm I heard from you. And the other thought is so babies, we are born with that capacity for attunement, right? That baby has the most exquisite capacity to be attuned to the mother, to every, and then in in time that gets fragmented, is that how you see it? Because of experiences and because of trauma? And maybe if the mother didn't know how to attune, that's where uh, uh, we begin to break lose this most natural um, way uh, of communicating, I would say. Uh, exactly. Exactly. That I think that we can see how we cannot leave the wounds of the past behind without being affected by them. Even Sigmund Freud, you know, a long time ago in Vienna said, like, the unconscious trauma is subject to a repetition compulsion. We could also say the trauma of our ancestors will echo into our life and our trauma will echo into our children's life if we want it or not it's not just a rational thing or i will prevent that rationally there will be ways and moments how our trauma replays itself in our behavior in the way we get triggered in the moments when we lash out on others or we feel distant so there are all kinds of ways how what happens in one generation ripples out to the next generation except we and i think many of us here put a lot of energy attention and work into bringing those elements into our awareness because that's the only way to stop the transgenerational transmission. And that is when you speak about the baby, like if I carry some hurt inside on that level of my nervous system, not generally, but on that level of my nervous system, I am not able to attune to you and I'm also not able to attune to my child. More so, I will experience difficulties with my child when my child reaches the age where my traumatization happened. So then there will be some kind of relational difficulties. And many people think, oh, that shouldn't be. But I, and I think many others also say, no, but when that happens, it's an invitation. It's like a built-in therapy that life has naturally built in. Like the next generation, <clears throat> I often say the parents are the piano and the child is the piano player. And if it hits a key that doesn't sound well, that is not tuned, then it will keep hitting it. And, and that's, so that's a chance to grow. Same as issues at work or issues with our, in our intimate relationships are invitations 
to see the parts in ourselves that are either numb, where a lot of stress resides in us, where we feel fragmented and disconnected. And, and so when, when parents cannot attune to the children, as maybe many of us also experience to a certain extent, then that attunement capacity of my nervous system, I need some kind of process to desensitize the effect that it has on me. And, and I think that's what we see in all kinds of patterns, protection, defense mechanisms, and so on. And so when we, when, because I think in our deepest nature, we are deeply relational. Our whole nervous system is wired to be related. They're like we are social beings. We cannot otherwise. It's anyway there, but we often fold it inwards because it's simply not being met. But the other thing is also true. We have a tremendous capacity to create individual, ancestral, communal, societal health by reversing the process, which means become somebody that is more attuned, become somebody that is more present and brings those capacities into the ecosystem. And then we can grow. And of course, there's also like, there's always nature and nurture. There's nature is the constitution that we were born with. Not everybody is being born with the same sensitivity of the nervous system. But then it's also true that sometimes because we cannot fully ground ourselves in life because of not being attuned to, not being felt, not being seen, that we reduce some of the sensitivity and and that makes our sensitivity sometimes look like a burden, but it's actually not a burden, it's a blessing if we can ground ourselves in the body. And so a lot of the healing work is also the re-embodiment of, um, of our our intelligence, and then we feel also more related in the world, and then our sensitivity is not a burden, but a gift. Let's see, maybe we can use some examples. How does one can move from a space of trigger to a space of attunement? And what do we attune to? Do I attune to the trigger first and and, uh, and, and then follow from there? Do I attune to myself first and then to the other person, if you can give us some steps, do I tune to the space? Do I tune to the land? Um, where is the attention? Uh, let's say, um, so when I get triggered, what, what happens is what I feel is the symptom of a trauma area that resides somewhere deeper inside of me. And I don't feel the trauma really. I feel the symptoms that it creates. So first of all, 
when I get triggered, usually my capacity to stay spacious, to stay open, to stay in a, in a, in a state of relatedness gets reduced. So either we get very agitated and stressed or we get distant, shut down, numb and uh, indifferent. And in both, we lose often at least the capacity to feel the other. So our relational space, so when we are sitting here now, I think for many of us, the relational space is open. So our nervous system is regulated, is, is in a social engagement zone, and we can feel each other while we speak, and our inside and outside are more connected. When we get triggered and our stress level goes up, either we go into fight, so out, or we go flight in, or we freeze if it's strong. And so all those are not in the same capacity, don't have the same capacity to feel each other. So when I notice that, then it means the first thing I need is, I need, I, it tells me that my processor touches overwhelm. That overwhelm that I feel in the trigger doesn't happen now. It's the past. But it overshadows my experience of now so strongly that it looks like now I'm really so stressed. But that stress, I believe, is in my body all the time. It's just that somebody takes the flashlight of my consciousness and shines it exactly on the pain point. And usually my consciousness focus is somewhere else. And so once I know that, I see, oh, overwhelm needs a moment of... So what I do is I take a breath. I, I stop for a moment, even a second when I'm in a conversation before I answer, maybe I can take a moment to just take a breath and exhale and, and then speak. So I, I look what helps me, even in a daily life situation, to create a little bit more space to give my nervous system a chance to look what's happening. The second step is that a trigger usually has different components. It has a physical component. So there's physical tension, stress in my physical body. So I begin to notice also through my practice, and maybe later we can do a short three-sync practice that I also in the book describe, like three-sync means the synchronization of my physical, emotional, and mental experience and the awareness of it. And so I go, I learn in my practice, maybe every day for five, 10 minutes to, to feel, okay, where is most of my liveness in the body? Where do I connect? Where can I sit in myself? And it's joyful. It's, there's pleasure. There's uh, energy. I feel energized, streaming, pulsing. Because the more I get to know those places in the practice moments, I can return to those easier when I am in a triggered moment. And the second thing is, okay, so I notice there, there's a physical dimension because that's not always clear in the triggered moment because our focus usually gets very tight. So then I'm not fully aware of what's actually happening to me right now. I just notice that I'm triggered. And so there's the physical dimension and that stress, for example, needs a breath to slow down my exhalation a bit. Even when I talk to somebody, I can slow down my exhalation, the way I exhale and, and allow my body to feel the stress, but use my breath to help my nervous system to relax a bit more and feel the stress. 
so that I can digest it more. And the second step is that I, I learn to assess my emotional state. And my emotional state is either I feel an emotion. So when I ask myself, or when we ask ourselves now, what's the emotion that's present right now? So when, when I feel, for example, a little bit of joy or excitement to sit here with you, and I love our conversation. So then that is, even if it's subtle, uh, an emotional flavor. But sometimes we ask ourselves, what's the emotion? And then we actually don't know. And we, and we notice also when we ask somebody, what, what's your emotional state right now? And then people start talking about it. Oh, yes, I feel that I feel left alone. No, that's not the feeling. That's a thought. So how, how do you feel? And usually what we see is that we actually feel numb. <laughs> and that we learned to override numb moments. We, we feel it with intellectual ideas instead or instead of saying, I don't know. I feel overwhelmed. I feel that I don't feel as simple as that. And then we stop. I feel that I don't feel. And I, I'm because those moments also interpersonally, we often fill with stuff. And actually what we need is a moment of I need a moment to notice that not feeling means I'm touching a place in myself that was overwhelmed in the past, got triggered again. And then if the person that talks to me keeps talking to me, that's not very skillful because it just puts data into an overwhelmed computer. But if the person that talks to me notices that I stop feeling myself because they're in attuned to my emotional experience, they will just stop for a second or two, give me a chance to reconnect to myself and then continue the conversation. So it has an individual competence building factor, but it also has a skill building factor on the relational dimension. So how I notice in which state other people are and that I include that in the way I communicate things. And just as an example, I think often in workplaces it happens that people ask other people to do things, but in that moment, can you please do this and that for me? And the next day we ask, oh, by the way, did you do that? And then they say, oh, no, I forgot. No, but oh, no, I forgot. In many cases was clear in the moment when we asked because we didn't feel that the data doesn't really land in the experience of the person. The person was too busy, overwhelmed. We said something and they said, yes, yes, intellectually, but they didn't really register the information fully. Mm -hmm. So in many interpersonal moments, it's not just that then I come and I say, ah, but why didn't you do it? I could also say, yeah, but that's true. But the other thing is also true that maybe I wasn't aware enough to notice that you had no space to hear me. And I didn't feel that. So this raises also the bar of our social responsibility. So how we, our attunement is also part of a contribution to a better data flow. And 
So numbness and absence, I think, we talk often about emotions, but we we need to include that one emotion, so to speak, is also numbness. And that numbing for, for all of us, I think, was an important function in different levels of our development. And is not a dysfunction. When I don't know what I feel, I know that the function of numbing was important. And what I do by not overriding it is I begin to respect myself. Instead of, because in those moments, often we push ourselves into doing something versus relaxing into the numbness. Say, okay, I feel that I don't feel, and that's perfectly okay. And in the moment I do that, I synchronize myself with the part of my nervous system that knows how to numb my emotions and that usually turns it back on. And and I think this this is just one way that, of course, we need to also train a bit through practice. But I think that's something I can do while I speak to somebody or while I'm in a team meeting or while I'm in a work process, I can do some of that inner work also while I'm in it. I can notice the experience of my body. I can notice my emotions. I can notice my distancing or closeness and and practice. It's not gonna disappear in a, it's not a, the miraculous remedy, but it becomes that if we practice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking in, in relational field, if one party is numb, the the others could feel threatened by the numbness, and I, I could feel threatened because it will be like, oh, I don't exist. But it's, so yeah. that create I've experienced that many times. So attunement will be really allowing that numbness to be there, and for me to be aware of my tri- what that numbness does triggers to me, you, yeah, right. Instead of acting. Yeah, so uh, this is is it's very um, alive for me as a situation. So yeah, what? So that I, I I just would love to look at it through attunement to the practice of attunement. How mm-hmm. do I attune to the numbness of my partner and to the triggering that that does. Or um, uh-huh. I attune to my need for something else to be there. Is that an attunement or is, just, is that the recognition? Where is the attention in that? Yes. And I want to add also another part. There is always numbness or there is also another layer of lower emotional state that is not triggered and doesn't require to go into numbness is simply state of acceptance, relaxation, being, is there such a thing? Yeah, well, uh, that's great. That's a great, both great questions. So I, I will try to get, get to both. Um, so Zaya, I think what you describe is something that many people might know. When our life partner, for example, or in a marriage or whatever, we are like, we don't feel felt or by other people. And then 
is comes up the sensation either of fear or I don't exist. That usually happens when in our family of origin, we landed in the numbness of our parents and we really didn't exist there because the parenting is the process of actualizing our children's existence on every level of their development. When parents see their children, they actually, it's like when you activate the SIM card in your phone. It's when in the moment you activate it, it goes boom. So the genetic information plus the relational component of the parents fully actualizes and helps the child to embody a new function. So positive attention, when you see your child coming with creative drawings and stuff and, and you pay attention and you say, yes, wow, beautiful what you did. And I like your this and this. So the children feel activated through the seeing of the parents or when children are afraid and they say, yes, I feel you're afraid. Come to me, come to me. Let's have a look. So then emotions be stay mutual spaces versus separate spaces. And so what you said is very common because if we come and our parents are numb in a certain area, so we actually get the feeling we don't exist. And then stuff happens to us that's painful. And, and I think it's very important to notice that feeling somebody who is more numb or distant triggers that. And both people have like some kind of work to do in order to melt that into relationality or relating. So that's, that's very powerful. And of course there is the need, but sometimes the need is a young need that needs to be seen on that level, but respected on that level in order to integrate itself into the capacity to hold the space for somebody that is numb. But in our mature self, when we are not triggered in a younger place, we we can notice, oh, I'm talking to somebody and I feel and I see the person goes numb inside. And then I will naturally, I don't know, bring something small into the moment. Either ask a question or just take a breath and I, I wait a moment or I feel or and I feel the person's numbness. I feel that the person is numb creates a relationship to the numbing part. So brings the numbing back into relationship. All of that are, are ways how we socially can include that. And then we have bigger areas of numbness when it's about racism, when it's about cultural wounds, when it's about colonial wounds, when it's about whatever the Holocaust, there are huge areas of numbness in our society where we as culture don't feel ourselves where we get sometimes triggered, but we don't feel the big gaps that we have between us where hundreds of years of pain might reside. And, and so I think that's true. And also, Maurizio, I think that it's true that when we are in deeper contemplative or meditative states, it feels like that the spaciousness uh, has less and less overt emotions and is more and more like a space of equanimity and spaciousness and but for many meditators it's also important to be able to discern that sometimes we mix that state with a state that is emotionally also not connected 
Yeah. And that we learn to discern that. So that there is, at least even if we don't notice strong emotions or so, but there's a, in spaciousness, there's a sense of like an energetic presence. And sometimes it feels more empty, but it's actually also energetically empty. So these are two different states, but it's true. The more we dive into deeper states, those emotional expressions go more to a resting place and 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 there it's a bit it's a bit different yeah but, but I, I i'm not i didn't mean in the deep state i mean in the day-to-day right so do you always have to feel an emotion somehow let's say she yeah. asked me hey can you do this and i'm like uh yeah okay and then maybe i don't do it so is uh, is numbness I mean, is, I'm, I'm numbing myself or I'm simply, um, I don't know. Do, do, there has to always be an emotional charge in any moment we have. No, not charge in the sense of like charge sometimes means emotions when they are strong. Sometimes emotions are very subtle. When I ask myself and I say, oh, I feel a little bit of a glow of joy. But it's not like a strong joy. I feel a little bit of a insecurity in the background. It's not strong that I would say, oh, I'm scared. But when I pay attention, I could maybe name something because it's subtle. You know, it's not always like charge, like strong, like when, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. There are gradients of emotional connection. So, so what you call numbness is simply the lack of awareness of the emotion you are experiencing and therefore for lack of awareness of what you experience, you call it numbness, but it's not froze numbness is simply an awareness of, of, of your subtle emotion and therefore, okay, got it. Right. Right. It's gradients of numbing, the subtle numbing, and then there are very deep dissociated fields that are much stronger and much more frozen. Right. It's also like a gradient. You know, it's not just disorder. It's like a, like a scale, lighting scale. question about attunement before I would love to move to transparent communications. Um, how does attunement look like in a larger groups, uh, in a larger fields? Mm. Let's say we were filming in a group where the field was very heavy, very lots of trauma, lots of heaviness. How does attunement would look like in a space? Mm. Mm. So first of all, like as an example, when I sit here with the two of you and with all of us here, I, I just see the two of you now, but when we put on the gallery view as we did it before, all of us are sitting here. So when I ask everybody to open their eyes, look at the screen, so when I do it now with the two of you, Zaya and Maurizio exist in Thomas as energy, which means perception, which means a certain data composition. So when I look at you, the feeling that I have of you 
means that Zaya and Maurizio that I see lives in my nervous system. So you, the two of you that I experience are always in me. They're always very close to me. When, when I pay attention to that, I can refine my, my awareness of that data flow, which gives me a lot of access to refined experience of the two of you. What that means also is that, of course, let's say me, I'm sitting here as a body in where I'm sitting in the location in my office, but I also exist in everybody here right now as an ascetic perception of Thomas. So when, when we listen all now and we are all together here in this space, the presence that is being generated through listening kind of puts more intensity of awareness and focus on Thomas, Saya, Maurizio, because we are here talking and everybody else is listening. So that creates a, a coherence function already. That's already an attunement of a group to the process that's happening. Now, that's happening anyway, or when people go to the to an or to listen to to the symphony orchestra to a concert. So everybody who's listening is channeling presence, bringing presence to the music that enhances the music. The music wouldn't be the same without everybody listening. So when you go and you have these peak moments where music touches you so much that you have goosebumps or that, that you say, wow, you're in awe. That's also because many people are being activated in a certain level of their awareness and that synchronizes itself to the strong group experiences. And so even, even in working with very difficult or heavy emotions or strongly traumatized cultures, I have, as, as, uh, as you know, but I've been sitting over and over again with people that were survivors of concentration camps or their children and SS descendants. It's very charged. It's very heavy. It's very loaded. At the same time, I've experienced some of the most amazing moments exactly in those spaces of presence of a group where it was so attuned that we all, in a way, stepped into a bigger space together. Like we all transcended to a certain extent our individual viewpoints and opinions, because that was not anymore the focus. The focus was more the healing process of people that are courageous enough to meet, to come together and to bring more healing and attunement and relationality into a very loaded past. And that has amazing healing effects. So when we, as a group, as, as I said before, when we pay attention to, we are happening in each other. Thomas is sitting here as a buddy. Thomas exists in everybody who sees Thomas right now as energy. So I'm a particle and I am a wave. I'm an energy data flow in everybody. I'm also a particle here and they are not separate. So no one here is separate. 
We are all particle and waves. We all exist in each other anyway. And somehow the attunement work just makes it more obvious that our existence is interdependent all the time. And that's, I believe, a core function of the self-healing mechanism of life. I experienced that even if we worked with very difficult topics, there is a power in the room that is bigger than the trauma. There's something in the room. Of course, there's the divine power that's bigger than the trauma, but there's the self-healing mechanism of the biosphere that heals our body when we cut ourselves and the body heals. There is a function that does that. But that function also lives in our societies. We need to activate that function if we want to heal the wounds of racism or colonialism or gender violence or genocides or big things that are happening or happened. And that I experience being active through that kind of attunement and willingness and also courage to engage more difficult topics. And then the group coherence is a is a powerful remedy literally i've seen groups with hundreds or even more people thousand people and you could feel a pin drop in certain moments when one person was speaking everybody else was in and and those moments i think show what kind of power we have collectively to heal ourselves and i find it deeply Amazing, and I, I I think this this power needs to be harvested more because we all have access to that, and uh, so that's why what you talk what you brought in the group coherence I think is a very important function, and I think if teams companies just use a little bit of the practice just at the beginning of a team meeting we take a moment and see who's here how's everybody feeling we come to our workplace and we feel the workplace for a moment we you know whatever we work if we go to a hospital we do the same so that kind of i feel you and with other people i feel you feeling me I think is a much more powerful function than it sounds sometimes. Relational competencies, also in leadership development, are called soft skills. I don't think that's the right word at all. It's a, it's the base skill for everything else that gets channeled through it. So yeah, that's a bit. But I'm I'm happy to dive deeper with some aspects. But I think that's the, the overview. So Anzaya said uh, before she wanted to move uh, to a new topic, slightly lighting topics, but connected. What is transparent communication? And I just want to add, as we have been filming, traveling, visiting indigenous communities, one thing that I have seen and I have learned in this in these journeys is the skill of listening. Uh, there is something about indigenous communities that that skill is so de so developed. Uh -huh. Deep listening, and at the beginning was really striking to see if if an elder or someone is talking, everything, everyone just becomes silent, quiet, um, and I, we don't in in our busy Western world is so rare to experience that quality of 
listening. So it, it becomes so striking when you come back to the to the Western world after being embedded in a in a in a culture, and it's like everybody talking to each other. No, no, but wait, no, it's incredible the rhythm of you know. So communication, we also often think of oh, talking. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Communication. I'm telling you what communication is. <laughs> exactly. Like <laughs> right? Yeah. Transparent communication is like exactly what you actually what you said already. It's like it's a deeper quality of listening. But it's also that transparent doesn't mean it means of course that we are honestly sharing and that we become more authentic and transparent what's going on in us about what's going on in us but that's not the focus why i call it transparent communication and transparency means that the energy flow of the communication opens up more and more to us as we deepen our relationship to ourselves so there's inner inner body or inner transparency to the self to when i feel myself and the different layers of myself but then that the space in between us is not just empty or there's or not just air, but there's actually a lot of data flowing. For example, that when, when children learn that fear, that when I can come to midnight and say, or when my daughter comes and says, Thomas, Thomas, I'm afraid, or daddy, daddy, I'm afraid. And then, and then I say, okay, don't be afraid, there's nothing dangerous in the house. So what did I do? I devalued my daughter's emotion. I created a distance. I said, don't, don't be so scared. And then I give an intellectual answer to an emotional request. And the other version would be, I'm scared and I say, yes, I feel you're scared. I feel my daughter. I feel her fear. I say, come, come to me. And we create a synchronization on the emotional level. My nervous system and hers meet. We co-regulate. The stress reduces. And then I say, okay, let's have a look what happened. And I bring my rational parental leadership into the, into the moment. So why am I saying this? Because... The space, like emotions, often we talk about emotions, but emotions are actually very complex. Because first of all, in a collectively traumatized world, it looks like these are my emotions and these are your emotions. When in fact, in an attuned field, emotions are not personal properties, but relational states. Fear is not just my fear, because if you feel my fear, we are both in the same space. So you feel it, I feel it, and we are sharing a fear space as two computer processors or as the, the alive collective field. We are, we are touching a field together. When I'm sad and you feel that I'm sad, I feel you feeling me. So the sadness actually becomes a shared space. I think it's even a part of the collective traumatization, a symptom that we kind of misinterpret is the focusing on, on indivi hyper-individualized emotional states. I think that that's not, that that's not a property of a person. It's, it's a field aspect. And when my daughter feels me, 
feeling her fear and she can share it with me, she immediately feels a relief. So when we are in daily interactions and we pay attention, we can see how the relational field of somebody is fluctuating the whole time. So some a person might be very open and then they start talking about something and you can feel how they retract their energy from the relationship to themselves, which in itself is great. There's nothing good or bad about this. It's just important that I recognize that that just happened because that tells me that the person talks about something that their experience as a child did not support the mutuality of emotions. So some people, when they are scared, they immediately leave the relationship a bit. So they immediately retract their, their openness into themselves. When that happens, as I said, that's amazing and that's great. And this was the best the person could learn in their ecosystems, their families, wherever, teachers, schools. But for me, and especially when we work on trauma, I highly pay attention that emotions always have a certain age. When 10 people talk about fear, they, all of them might talk about something else. Fear is not fear. There's a fear of a five-month-old baby left alone in the hospital. There's a fear of uh, being bullied at school. There's a fear of my sexual identity and expression in the society. And all of them are different flavors of emotion and need a different relational attention. It's not the same thing. And it needs from my nervous system a different attunement because I need to hold a 40-year-old person in my group energetically differently when they talk about this early baby fear than when they talk about being bullied in school as a teenager. And so it has an age. And when we are open and trained, we can track that age pretty fast. When somebody says, oh, I, I, one person comes with panic attacks, the other person comes with panic attacks, and they need a very different treatment. And because what they are talking about is different. And the other thing is the relational space is important. If we had great supportive relations, when we are afraid, we can stay much more open. We can give a talk on stage, talk openly about our fear, be related to the audience. It will feel like natural. Why? Because I know the world is supportive. Except it's dangerous when it's really dangerous. But for many people, the world is scary. Mm -hmm. In 90% of the time when it's not dangerous, it's also dangerous. So that's not dangerous. That's my past telling me that I cannot trust you. I cannot tell you my deepest fears because you will not hold me. And this has nothing to do with the two of you. It has a lot to do with how I learned from early on that my fear is better I hold myself. And so... Paying attention in the transparent communication that the space between us is super important in the sense of what's being communicated and how. And then the next level of attunement is that I feel you, your body, how my words meet you, don't meet you, 
what what are the reactions what kind of how deep it goes in or not and that that all is the transparency of the relational field and of course in our good moments we have more access to that in our triggered moments we have way less access to that and that's part of it and that's also great because i think it should be an adventure to find out more about it and it's not about being able to do it or not but being able to practice that uh yeah so this is the basis of transparent communication is that openness and having more and more access to those different levels of attunement and that exits of course and and extends itself into the cultural field group field society global whatever well this is so so rich and so beautiful that that really moved me when you said emotions are not individual they're they emerge in a relational field they're product of relationality and in a way the power of collective healing is that that emotion is held in that relational field so it's not longer no longer my fear but it can relax in mm-hmm. exactly and i was thinking again to indig- indigenous communities they have so many ceremonies in which there mm-hmm. is a wailing ceremony or a grief ceremony where they they know that the grief is not doesn't belong to an individual. Exactly. To, um, the to, to the community, to the yeah. collective, yeah. to ancestors as well come into the field as well. It goes to the interconnected versus disconnect. The individualism we have makes emotion are ours. Yes. You know, everything is everything is mine, mine, even my emotion is my trauma. No, it's it's all ours. I mean, it's all something that we can process and feel as a community, as a group. Yeah. Yeah. That's Until it. We meet again. Until we meet again. Very good to be with you, Thomas. <laughs> thank you, Thomas. Such a joy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for our friendship. I deeply enjoy the space that we create here. So thank you. And thank you, everybody who was here. It was a beautiful space we created together. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.